Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chalaramanaya Namaskaram. The topic I'm going to be talking about today is uh, initially is about uh, manonasa, destruction of the mind, because this is a topic which is um, very uh, widely misunderstood. Even most um, classical Advaitins don't really have a clear idea of what is meant by manonasa. In fact, if you listen to uh, classical Advaitins, you'll often hear them saying that manonasa doesn't mean that the mind is really destroyed, but they try and qualify it in some way. Um, but according to Bhagavan, manonasa means complete annihilation of the mind, a complete obliteration of the mind. Um, so this is a very important topic to clarify. And not only, as I say, this is a topic many classical Advaitins don't really understand very clearly. Um, I don't know a lot about classical Advaita, but one of the uh, important texts of classical Advaita is Panchadasi by Vidya Rayan. And I, I haven't read that, but I have heard it said but in that text, in he has a, a section on Jiva Mukti. Uh, Jiva Mukti means uh, uh, liberation while alive. That's a literal meaning of it. Um, and in that, he distinguishes three things. He talks about liberation, Vasanaksha, and Manonasa, as if they are three different things. But according to Bhagavan, um, in the 40th verse of of, um, of Uludunapu, Bhagavan is very explicit about this. What what he says in the in the 40th verse is, if it is said that liberation that one will experience is of three kinds, uh, with form, without form, or with or without form. I'm slightly paraphrasing it because it's how it is expressed in in the original is if it is said that liberation that one will experience is three form formless form formless that what that implies is there are three types of liberation with form without form or with or without form so Bhagavan says if it is said like that I will say um uh, then the last sentence is literally means the ego form, which distinguishes form, formless, form, formless, being destroyed is liberation. In other words, that, that is the main, the main clause of this sent of this verse is the final clause, ahande uru aridal mukti. This that means literally means. The ego form being destroyed is liberation. In other words, destruction of ego alone is liberation. So for Bhagavan, there's no difference between destruction of ego and uh, liberation. Um, and um, <clears throat> the root of everything, the root of the mind is ego. When ego is destroyed, mind is destroyed. And since the Vasanas exist only for ego. When ego is destroyed, vasanas are destroyed. So vasanakshaya, which means destruction of vasanas, and manonasa, destruction of mind, mean the same. And that is liberation. 
So whether Vidyarayan is being misinterpreted or misunderstood by people who say that he spoke about these are three separate things or not, I don't know, because I haven't studied that. But um, this is a very prevalent idea in, um, in, in classical Advaita, but there's somehow some sort of difference between Vasanakshaya and Manonasa. And and liberation, these are different things. But according to Bhagavan, they're all one and the same. Um, the whole bondage, as Bhagavan said, as he says in verse 24 of Uludunapadu, where he describes what is ego, he, he says, um, uh, <clears throat> Jado Udal Nane Nadu, but insentient body does not say I. Um, uh, does not say I, that's a metaphorical way of saying the, the insentient, the Jada body does not, is not aware of itself as I. Satchit Udiyadu, Satchit, that's um, existence awareness or being awareness, does not rise. Ideil, uh, <clears throat> Uh, uh, sorry, Udalalava Nanonju Udikum Ideal. That means in between one thing, I rises at the extent of a body. In other words, this, this I that rises, because it's aware of itself as I, it is not the body. Because it rises, it is not such it. Because the body is not aware of itself as I, such it does not rise. So it's neither the body nor such it, but something that rises in between. In between here implies it borrows the properties of both. That is, as ego, we are aware of ourselves. We are aware of ourselves as I am. That is such it. That awareness I am is such it. Uh, uh, pure uh, existence awareness. But we're not aware of ourselves just as I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So ego is a conflation of two quite contrary things. The jada body, jada means it's not aware, and uh, existence awareness. So these are two completely contrary things which we are conflated. And the conflation of these two things is what is called ego. So what he so he says, in between one thing, I rises at the extent of a body. And then he goes on to say, this is uh chit jadagranti. Chit jadagranti means the not, it literally means awareness, non-awareness, not. In other words, the not formed by the entanglement of awareness with what is not aware. What is not aware means the body, and chit refers to such it, in other words, the pure awareness I am. So in this adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body, but chit portion is I am, that is what is real. But jada portion is the body, which is unreal. But conflation or entanglement of these two is what is called chit jada granti, the not formed by the, by the entanglement of these two. Of course, chit is never entangled, but from the perspective of ego, it seems to be tied up and conflated with this body. So it seems to be entangled. So he said, this is a chitjadagranti bandham. He says it is bondage. So there's no such thing as bondage other than ego. Ego alone is bondage. So if ego is destroyed, bondage is destroyed. That is why Bhagavan concludes in verse 40, but destruction of ego alone is liberation. 
destruction, in other words, destruction of bondage alone is liberation, because there's no bondage other than ego. We, that is, by rising as ego, we bind ourselves to the limitations of the body. So that is why it's called bondage. That is, it is from that that we are seeking liberation. In order to be liberated from that, ego must be destroyed. So he said, this is chitaragranti, bandham, bondage, jivan. Jivan means the soul uh, or individual. Nupame, the subtle body. Here he uses the subtle body in a different sense to the sense in which it's often used. He's not referring, but often it is taught, we, they talk about three bodies, the gross bodies, the uh, stula sarira, the sukshma sarira, the subtle body, and uh, karana sarira, the causal body. And these are related to the five sheaves. The physical body is said to be the stula sarira, the life or prana, the mind and intellect are said to be sukshma sarira, the subtle body, and the will or anandamaya kosha is said to be the karana sarira. But here Bhagavan is using this term subtle body in a different sense, because the reason he uses this, it, in this, he uses the term subtle body here, is that it is often said that what transmigrates, in other words, what goes from one life to another, is the subtle body. But it's not the subtle body in the sense of the prana, um, the pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and vijnanamaya kosha. It's the subtle body in the sense of ego. Ego alone is what goes from one life to another. And what ego takes with it are its vasanas, which is what um, constitutes the, the chittam or will, which is also called the anandamaya kosha or karana sarira. Karana sarira means a causal body. Um, <clears throat> Uh, so this is Chicharagranti, bondage, jiva, subtle body, ahande. Ahande means ego. Ichamsaram, this samsara, that is for Bhagavan, there's no such thing as samsara other than ego. Ego alone is samsara. Um, so it's ego, the whole of samsara is nothing but an expansion of ego. Ego is the root cause of it. And it is also mana, mind. That is, the term mind is used in different sense, in different contexts, but often we use the mind in the sense of the knower. The knower is ego. So the mind in this sense is, is ego, it's the same as ego. So the, the, the reason I refer to this verse here is according to Bhagavan, bondage is nothing but ego. So destruction of ego alone is the ending of bondage. When, therefore what is called liberation so that and since ego is the root of the mind when ego is destroyed the mind is destroyed and since the vasanas are, are only ego's vasanas without ego no vasanas can exist you can't have likes and dislikes without something that is liking and disliking so the, all the vasanas about the inclinations or the seeds that give rise to the likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on, they all belong only to ego. So without ego, there can be no vasanas. So destruction of ego alone is destruction of the mind, destruction of the vasanas, and liberation. So these three are all one and the same. Um, there is also a lot of confusion in... Um, in Neo-Advaita about uh, Manonasa, because um, Neo-Advaita is generally, it's a very um, diluted and trivialized um, 
uh, well, it's not really a dvaita at all, but it's a it's a, a trivialization of the very deep teachings of Advaita. Um, and uh, for most neo advaitins the idea of destruction of the mind is not at all palatable. So generally, in um, in neo advaita they will um, they will either reject the idea of manonasa or they'll dilute it. So both. The, this is one place where the Neo-Advaitins and the classical Advaitins come very close together. But Bhagavan is very, very clear. But liberation is nothing but destruction of mind. And destruction of mind means destruction of mind. It, it, there's no, we cannot qualify it. Destruction of mind means complete annihilation of mind. Uh, Bhagavan was unequivocal about this. So, the context in which I I want to talk about this is um, something I was sent recently by Sandra. Sandra is the friend who um, who com recently compiled a book, uh, Ramana Maharshi's Forty Verses on What Is. That is, she compiled that from various from my translations of Uludunapadu and explanations that I've given of the verses of Uludunapadu. Either in my blog or um, or in video. So she uh, compiled both from oral and written sources, all my, uh, well, not all my explanation, but uh, some of my uh, key explanations of these verses, she compiled them into a book. So she wrote to me um, recently saying, almost daily I post creatives uh, designed images with short texts out of 40 verses on what is on Facebook. They get a lot of responses. Today I posted a text that is part of the explanation of Benedictory verse 2. And then she quotes, this is something I think I had said or written at some point. The death that we will experience when we surrender our false individual awareness is the absolute clarity of true self-knowledge. Uh, uh, which always shines in the innermost core of our being is the death of, <coughs> sorry, I didn't read that right, but the death we will experience when we surrender our false individual awareness in the absolute clarity of true self-knowledge, which always shines in the innermost core of our being, is the death of our mind or ego. The death of our body is not a true death, because when our body dies, our mind will uh, create for itself another body by its power of imagination. As long as our mind survives, it will continue creating for itself one body after another. In other words, until we take, re uh, until we take refuge, we will continue undergoing this samsara of repeated births and deaths. Hence, the only true death is the death of our mind. Um, I don't know uh, uh, where I um, wrote or said this, but this, from the wording, it seems to be what from one of my older writings, perhaps from Happiness and the Art of Being or some other source. But anyway, that doesn't matter. The gist of it is is is, is what's important. And though I wouldn't quite word it in this way in this way now, the gist of it is is very clear. Uh, the death of body is not real death. The death of the mind alone is real death. And the death of mind is the, what happens when we surrender ourselves completely and thereby dissolve in the 
infinite clarity of pure awareness that is ever shining in our heart as our own being. So anyway, she that she quoted what I had written had said there. Then um, she went on in her email to say, someone from the Facebook group Rupert Spira community replied with these questions, and these are the questions I will uh, I will um, answer um, now. Uh, one, how is it possible to live this life with a dead mind? Two. How is it even possible to write this if one's mind is dead? Three, is it even possible to decide to surrender if we lose our mind? So I will now answer these questions one by one. How is it possible to live this life with a dead mind? It depends what we mean by this life. If we take this our life to be the life of this body, then obviously we cannot live the life, bodily life with a dead mind, because mind and body always go together. As Bhagavan says in verse 5 of Uludunapadu, Udul Pancha Koza Uru, the body is a form of five sheaves. Uh, therefore, all five are included in the term body. So for Bhagavan, when Bhagavan talks about ego, he often says ego is the false awareness, I am this body. What he means by body is not just the physical form of the body, but all the five sheaves. The five sheaves are the physical form of the body, which is called the, uh, the Anamaya Kosha, the, the, the sheath composed of food, uh, the, um, the life of uh, or pranamaya kosha, sheath composed of prana. Prana means life. Uh, in other words, all the it, it includes all the physiological processes, but um, but are going on in a living body. Um, and then um, the manamaya kosha is the mind. That is all the grosser functions of the mind. The vijnanamaya kosha is the intellect or buddhi. Uh, and the Anandamaya Kosha is the will or chittam. These five uh, make up what is called body. Why does Bhagavan say that the body is a form composed of five sheaves and therefore all five are included in the term body? He does so because we, whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, we never experience ourselves as a dead body. It's always a living body. So the, it's not just the physical form of the body that we take to be ourself. It is the physical form combined with the life. In other words, it's a living body. And it is not that we never experience a sleeping body or a body in coma as ourself. We experience ourselves with this body only when we seem to be awake. Even in dream, we seem to be awake. And when we are awake, functioning within this body is the mind, intellect, and will. So we never experience ourselves as this body without, uh, without also experiencing ourselves as the life that animates the body, as the mind, intellect, and will that function within the body. In other words, we, when Bhagavan says ego is nothing but the false awareness I am this body, this body includes all these five sheaths. So, if we take our life as this bundle of five sheaves, as this body, to be our real life, 
then obviously it's not possible to live this life with a dead mind. Mind has to be there. Mind and body always go together. Whenever we experience ourselves as I am this body, but mind is, is, is part of the bundle. So obviously we cannot live a bodily life with a dead mind. Um, but this bodily life is not our real life. Our real life is our life as Satchit, as pure being awareness. Satchit does not need either the body or the mind or anything else. It is, it is, it is the fullness of, of being, the fullness of awareness. It doesn't depend on anything else. All other things appear only in the view of ego, and ego rises only from this satchit. So satchit is the fundamental reality. That is what we actually are. And to live as satchit, we do not need any of these five she's. We do not need a body. We do not need a mind or anything. So this question, how is it possible to live this life with a dead mind, is asked from the perspective of someone who is fully identified with the body, who takes this body to be, this, the life of his body to be our real life. If, this life of, if the life of his body were our real life, then obviously we need a mind to live this life. We, you can't have a, a body without a mind. But if this life of, the life of this body were our real life, then when this body dies, we would die. It would be the end of the story. But the whole point of uh, Advaita is to make us understand that this body is not what we actually are. What we actually are is the eternal Satchit that is ever shining uh, as I am. That is what we actually are. So to live as I am, we do not need mind or body. To live as this body, we certainly need mind. So um, the, the, it'd be useful here to say something about this concept of Jiva Mukti. Jiva, the idea of Jiva Mukti, liberation while alive, implies that while still living in this body, we are liberated. This is something Shankara uh, wrote a lot about, about Jiva Mukti, and it's a very central idea in classical Advaita, for a good reason, because um, that, that is, that, well, uh, the, the next question that this person asks it, uh, will throw more light on why this idea of, of Jiva Mukti is so central in classical Advaita. That is the next question the person asked, this person asked is, how is it even possible to write this if one's mind is dead? Um, this is this is typical of the sort of questions that are raised. That is, if if jnana is a state of complete destruction of mind, then how do we? The question that people often ask is, then how are all these uh, teachings given? How how did the uh, how how were we given the the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Brahma Sutra, and all the texts on jnana? And how can there be uh, gurus like Bhagavan? If um, if uh, <clears throat> if, there, if liberation is the destruction of mind, Bhagavan has explained this very clearly. Though the guru appears in human form, 
the human form is not what guru actually is. That is, in, in our view, Bhagavan seems to be a person like us. And as a person, he has a body and he has a mind. And with that body and mind, he gave, that is through the medium of that body and mind, he gave us these teachings. He gave us texts like Uludu, Napadu, Nana, Arunachastuti Panchakam, and so on. So how is this possible if his mind is dead? Very, Bhagavan explained this very clearly. Bhagavan said, the body and mind of the jnani, or the jiva mukta, exist only in the view of the agnani. That is, only in our view, but Bhagavan seems to be a body and mind. As he seems to be a person, a person means body and mind. So Bhagavan, in our view, he seems to have a body and he seems to have a mind. But that's only in our view. In his view, he is just pure awareness. He's, he is the infinite ocean of Satchidananda, nothing other than that. So in his view, there is nothing other than himself. There is no body, no world, no mind, no ego, nothing. But in our view, because we mistake ourselves to be the body, we see him as a body. Or to put it another way, because we have, mis because we have risen as this body, Bhagavan, who is our own real nature, Bhagavan, our own real nature means Atmasarupa, what we actually are, appears outwardly in the form of Guru, in other words, for us in the form of Bhagavan, in order to teach us the term within. So it is, it is the outward form of Guru is the manifestation of his grace. And the light that is shining through that outward form. That is, we see Bhagavan as, as an, that is the, the human form of Bhagavan. We saw shining through that human form unlimited love. Bhagavan had equal love for all, for the good and the bad, for the high and the low, for, um, for humans, for uh, all species of animals, for dogs and cats and cows and scorpions and hornets and uh, snakes and everything. Bhagavan's love was equal because in his view, nothing is other than himself. So he, loved, he loves us all as himself. But we see him as a person. Um, so he, for those who were living with him in his bodily lifetime, they seem to have a personal relationship with him. And he, he in, to, all, to all appearances, he seemed to be a person, obviously a very special person, but a person nonetheless. But he said, this is all only in our view. But in, in the view of Banyani, there is no body or mind or world or any or any others. There is only just Satchitananda, which is what Banyani actually is. So, um, or as Bhagavan often used to put it very, um, very beautifully, jnana me jnani. Jnana alone is the jnani. Jnana means pure awareness. And pure awareness, what is the nature of pure awareness? It's just Satchitananda. So, um, <clears throat> There's no jnani other than jnana, because jnana means pure awareness. Jnani means what knows jnana. What can know pure awareness other than pure awareness? Pure awareness can, if, if something other than pure awareness were to know pure awareness, pure awareness would then be an object of awareness, which is obviously absurd. 
So what knows pure awareness is only pure awareness. That is what Bhagavan implied by saying jnana me jnani. So Bhagavan is just pure awareness, nothing other than that. But in our view, he seems to be a person. He, he has appeared in that form in this dream of ours in order to tell us the term within so that we may come to recognize that what he actually is, is what we actually are, which is just pure awareness. So, um, but Advaita has to, uh, has to admit of the state of Jiva Mukti, liberation while still living in the body. But as Bhagavan clarified, that state of Jiva Mukti is only in the view of others. But liberation itself is beyond that. There are said to be two liberations. But so long as you're still living in the body, if you're liberated, so long as you're still living in the body, you're a jiva mukta. When the body passes away, you become a videha mukta. Videha mukta means without, a mukta without body. But actually, mukti is annihilation of ego. Without ego, there's no connection with body. In fact, there's no body at all without ego. So all muktas are videha muktas. Um, and there aren't even, we can't even say all muktas, because that implies multiplicity. There is only one mukta, that is liberation. I mean, that is pure awareness, which is ever liberated. So a lot of, um, a lot of uh, explanations have to be given to satisfy people at different levels of understanding. So it's, it is necessary to talk about Jiva Mukti to those who ask, if the mind, if Bhagavan's mind is dead, then how did he write Uludunapdu? How did he write um, Nana? How did he write Arunachas to Tupanchakam? How did he answer all these questions? Um, how did he, how did he, was he so kind to all people? Obviously, he, Bhagavan has a mind. Yes, in our view, Bhagavan certainly seems to have a mind, but that is only in our view. So um, the, the, the concept of Jiva Mukti is necessary from the perspective of the Agnani, but from the perspective of the Jnani, there is, it, it is beyond the body and therefore beyond, I mean, the Jiva Mukti makes no sense from the perspective of Jnana, but it does make sense from the perspective of Agnana. So it's a, it's a concession that has to be made. Um, so uh, for people like who ask questions like this second question, how is it even possible to write this if one's mind is dead? Yes, we have to say yes, Bhagavan seems to have a mind and so he seems to have written Nuladunapadu. Um, but that's only in our view, not in his view. That's what's important to understand. Um, the whole of everything that we are experiencing now is a dream. The dreamer of this dream is ourself. We are the dreamer and we are the ones experiencing the dream. So the whole dream experience exists only in our view. So all the other people we see in this dream are a part of this dream. Uh, so Bhagavan appeared in this dream of ours in order to tell us to, he appeared in this dream of ours as if he were a person, as if he were a Jiva Mukta, in order to tell us to turn within to see what we actually are. Um, and, and then the third question is, is it even possible to decide to surrender if we lose our mind? 
this question is not very clear because that is exactly what this person is intending to ask is not clear. Is, is this person asking, but we need a mind in order to surrender? Yes, obviously we do need a mind to... Uh, surrender is necessary only because we have a mind. And what we have to surrender is our mind or mind in the sense of ego. If we surrender ego, then we've surrendered everything. So yes, we certainly need a mind in order to surrender. But what is it we are to surrender? It is the very mind that we are to surrender, or rather the root of the mind, namely ego, we are to surrender. If we surrender ego, then everything is surrendered. As Bhagavan explains very clearly in verse, um, verse 26 of Uludunapadu, um, uh, sorry, I'll just come get to that. Yeah. Uh, in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, he says, uh, If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Why does he say this? Because everything, that means all phenomena, seem to exist only in the view of ego. So it's only when we rise as ego that all these phenomena seem to exist. When we don't rise as ego, no, nothing seems to exist. So that's why he says, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. And then he goes on to say, Ahandeye yabamam. ego itself is everything. That is all this, this entire dream is nothing but a, uh, um, it is the dreamer that is seeing itself as the dream world. In other words, the dreaming mind sees itself as the entire dream world. So we have a dreaming mind and we are now seeing ourselves as all this. So everything is only ego. Ego itself is everything. And then he concludes that verse by saying, Therefore, know that investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Investigating what this is means investigating what ego is. So why is investigating what ego is giving up everything? Because, as he explained in the previous verse, um, uh, if, uh, if we investigate this ego, it will take flight. In other words, we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. When we turn our attention back within to see what we ourselves actually are, in other words, when we seek the reality of ego, when we as ego seek our own reality, we as ego will disappear and the reality alone will remain. That's the implication of te denal otum pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. So since ego will cease to exist if we investigate it, and since everything else will cease to exist if ego ceases to exist, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. So surrender is nothing but investigating our own reality, investigating what we as ego actually are. And when we know ourselves as we actually are, that is the giving up of everything. So surrender entails knowing ourselves as we actually are. And we can know ourselves as we actually are only by investigating ourselves. When we investigate ourselves keenly enough and thereby know what we actually are, ego will thereby be annihilated and everything else will be will go with it. 
So the state of manonasa is the state in which not only ego is destroyed, but everything is destroyed. What then remains is the one imperishable reality, uh, the one akshara uh, uh, swarupa, the imperishable, uh, our, our real nature, which is ever imperishable. In other words, the satchit, the pure awareness I am. That is what alone will remain when ego is destroyed. And ego, destruction of ego is destruction of mind. So destruction of mind alone is our aim. But it, it, in order to destroy the mind, we need to be willing to give up everything. Until we are willing to surrender everything and to be just to be eternally as we always actually are, which is just as pure being without ever rising to know anything else, until we are willing to surrender ourselves completely, we cannot destroy ego or mind. So this um, the, the goal of manonasa, or the eradication of ego, which are the same thing, is the goal for those who are willing to surrender everything, to give up everything, to know and to be what alone is real, namely the pure awareness I am. So the reason why many classical Advaitins and Neo-Advaitins are not ready to accept um, but it, but the mind has to be destroyed and destruction of the mind means complete and utter destruction of the mind. The reason they're not able to um, accept that is because they're not yet willing to surrender completely, to give up everything in order to know and to be what they actually are. Classical Advaitins had different reasons than Neo-Advaitins for not accepting this, but both of them, both of basically in the same boat, in that they're not yet willing to accept, but in order to know what we actually are, we need to be willing to give up everything. As Bhagavan says, investigating what this ego is, is giving up everything. And without investigating what this ego is, we cannot know what we actually are. So for, that's why Bhagavan makes it so clear. For example, in, in Nana, in, um, in the third and fourth paragraphs of Nana, Bhagavan makes it very clear that, um, that <clears throat> we, so long as we continue to know the world, we cannot know ourselves as we actually are. In the, um, in the third paragraph, what he says is, I'll just read the meaning rather than the Tamil. If the mind that is the cause, which is the cause for all awareness, what he means by here by saying, Sava Arivikum, Sava Torikum, Karanamahia Manam, the mind which is the cause for all awareness and for all activity. What he means by saying that the mind is the cause for all awareness, he means all awareness of things other than ourselves. Um, so we, 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 we need, it's important to understand that because in the previous, um, in the previous end of the previous paragraph, he ended by saying that awareness alone is I, and the word he used for awareness is Aribu. And here in this sentence, he said the mind alone is the cause for all Aribu. That there can be seem to be some sort of contradiction here, but it, we, we need to understand that the sense in which he uses the word Aribu or awareness there is the pure awareness I am. 
the awareness whose nature is Satchidananda. Whereas in this sentence, what he means by awareness is awareness of other things, things other than ourselves. So what he says here is, if the mind which is the cause of, for all awareness and all activity ceases, Jagat Drishti will depart. Jagat Drishti means perception of the world. So what is it that perceives the world? It is only the mind, or mind in the sense of ego, that is. So since the, the world, the Jagat Drishti is only for ego, it's only in the view of ego that the world seems to be seems to exist. It's ego alone that is perceiving the world. When ego uh, ceases, Jagat Drishti will depart. So if the mind, which is the cause for all awareness and all activity ceases, Jagat Drishti will depart. So there be, in the state of jnana, there will be no awareness of the world. In fact, the world will not exist at all, because the world exists only in the view of ego. When ego is destroyed, there is no world at all. That is why the ultimate truth is ajata, but nothing has ever risen or been destroyed. It is all what is alone is always as it is, without ever undergoing any change whatsoever. Um, and it is always etkam eva advaitiam, one only without a second. So very, the, the ultimate truth is but there's no such thing as ego or mind or body or world. What, he, what exists is only Atma Swarupa, and that alone is what always exists, and nothing other than that exists at all. That's what Bhagavan says in the first sentence of the seventh paragraph of Nana. Yatatamai Uludu Atma Swarupa Mandre. What actually exists is only Atma Swarupa. Atma Swarupa means the real nature of ourself. In other words, ourself as we actually are. So coming back to this uh, third paragraph, he, after saying that when, if a mind ceases, Jagat Drishti will depart, he goes on to explain this by saying, just as unless awareness of the imaginary snake goes, awareness of the rope, which is the adhisthana, the base or foundation, the underlying reality, will not arise. That is, <clears throat> so long as we see a rope as a snake, we cannot see it as a, a rope. That is, so long as we, we, we mistake it to be a snake, we are not seeing it as a rope. Though it is actually always only a rope, we are seeing it as something else. So without removing that wrong awareness that this is a snake, we cannot be aware of it as it actually is. Likewise, unless perception of the world, which is culprita, culprita means a, a fabrication, um, or, or, yeah, a, a mental fabrication. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, unless perception of the world, which is a culprita, departs, uh, darshana of swarupa, well, he says swarupa darshana, but to make it clear in English, we have to turn the order around, darshana of swarupa, in other words, seeing one's own real nature, which is the adhisthana. The adhisthana means our own real nature is the underlying reality, the base, the um, foundation, will not arise. So just like if we, to, to paraphrase it, just like we cannot see the rope as a rope, so long as we see it as a rope, uh, as a snake, we cannot see ourselves as we actually are, so long as we see ourselves as all this world, as all this multiplicity. Because what we are is one and indivisible. But now we are seeing ourselves as all of this. 
So until we cease seeing ourselves as all of this, we cannot see ourselves as we actually are. So that's what he says in the third paragraph. And in the fourth paragraph, he, he, give, he explains the same thing in another way. He, what he says in the fourth paragraph is, what is called mind is an adiseya shakti. Adiseya shakti means an extraordinary power that exists in Atmasvarupa, our own real nature. It makes all thoughts appear. When one looks, excluding all thoughts, solitarily, there's, no, there's not any such thing as mind. Therefore, thought alone is the very nature of the mind. Excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as world. Uh, this is an important sentence, that is, excluding thoughts, there's not separately any such thing as the world. What he implies by saying this is that what we see as the world, what we see as a world that seemingly consists of physical uh, objects, this is actually nothing but, these are, the world is nothing but a, a series of mental perceptions, which are mental phenomena or thoughts. So, excluding thoughts, there's not separately any such thing as world. In the 14th paragraph, he says the same thing even more succinctly. That means what is called the world is only thought. So, there's, there's, what, we, what we see as this vast world of so many uh, mountains and oceans and so many other things, it is all nothing but our own thoughts, our own uh, ideas in our own mind then is nothing but mental impressions and mental impressions are all uh, are what Bhagavan refers to here as thoughts so there's in other words the world though it seems to be physical is actually entirely mental um so excluding thoughts there is no not separately any such thing as world in sleep there are no thoughts and consequently there is also no world in waking and dream, there are thoughts, and consequently, there is also a world. Just as a spider spins out thread from within itself and again draws it back into itself, so the mind makes the world appear from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. This is a very nice analogy. Bhagavan has borrowed this analogy from one of the Upanishads, where, it's, where it is explained. But in the Upanishads, it is said, but just like a spider spins out thread from within itself and again it draws it back into itself, so uh, so Brahman makes uh, projects the world from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. In the Upanishads, it is said that Brahman uh, makes the world appear, but Bhagavan says it is the mind. Is there a contradiction here? Is Bhagavan contradicting what is said in the Upanishads? No, because Bhagavan is clarifying what is meant in the Upanishads. Brahman as Brahman doesn't create anything. It's only when Brahman appears in the form of mind that, it, that the creation takes place. So it's only Brahman in the form of mind that creates the world. Brahman as it is never creates anything. It is just pure being. So it's only as mind that Brahman creates the world. Um, and of course, Brahman is never the mind. Brahman is, Brahman is what appears as the mind, but it is not the mind. Brahman is just the sole underlying reality. Just like the, the rope is what appears as a snake, but it's never a snake. 
Brahman is what appears as ego or mind, but it is never ego or mind. Um, so just as a spider spins out thread from within itself and again uh, draws it back into itself, so the mind makes the world appear from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. If we read this along with the, um, with the previous two sentences, we will understand why Bhagavan says that the body and world do not exist in sleep. That is, in, when we rise in waking or dream, we project this world. So the world seems to exist only so long as we're, as, as the world exists only in the view of ourself as ego. So it's only when we perceive the world that it seems to exist. When ego subsides in sleep, the world also ceases to exist along with it. And when ego rises again in waking or dream, um, waking or dream the world, a world again appears. So there's no world other than ego. It's ego that has projected all this, that is seeing itself as all this world. Um, then, so he then concludes by saying, when, oh, oh sorry, no, then he says, when the mind comes out from Atmaswarupa, the world appears. The implication is that when the mind doesn't come out from Atmaswarupa, in other words, when we don't rise as mind or ego, there is no world at all. Therefore, when the world appears, Swarupa does not appear. And when Swarupa appears or shines, the world does not appear. Swarupa here means our own real nature, what we actually are. So, so long as we see ourselves as all this world, we are not seeing ourselves as we actually are. When we see ourselves as we actually are, we will no longer see ourselves as all this world. So according to Bhagavan, when the mind is destroyed, Everything is destroyed along with it. But ultimately, it's not even true to say that the mind is destroyed. Because in order to be destroyed, the mind must exist in the first place. And the mind never actually existed. As Bhagavan makes clear in verse 17 of Upadesha Undia, um, what he says in verse 17 of Upadesha Undia, Manatin Uruve Maravad Chava Manamenam Andrile Undipara Markam Nerakamid Undipara. That is, when one investigates the form of the mind without forgetting, when we very vigilantly investigate ourselves without ever allowing our attention to move away from ourselves. There is not anything called mind. That is, it will, if we investigate ourselves keenly enough, it will be clear that there's no such thing as mind. So what is called manonasa, or destruction of the mind, is actually recognition of the fact that there never was any mind at all. And since there never was any mind, there never was any body or world or anything else. So the ultimate truth is a jata. So investigating the form of the mind. What does he mean by investigating the form of the mind? He, he clarified that. I mean, we have to refer back to the previous verse to understand that. In the previous verse, he, he said, Veli vide engale vittu manum tan oliuru ordele undipara unme unachiam undipara. What that means is leaving external phenomena, the mind knowing its own form of light alone is real awareness. What's he mean by the mind knowing its own form of light? Its own form of light, light here is a metaphor for awareness. So its own, uh, uh, its own form of light implies its own chitsvarupa, its own real nature, which is awareness. So the mind knowing its own 
form as awareness, knowing itself as awareness, in other words, alone is real awareness. So only when we know ourselves as pure awareness is that that alone is real awareness. So uh, the mind knowing, he, he refers to it here, the mind knowing its own form of light, uh, that is, the the mind, mind here means ego, because the, the only knowing element of mind is ego. That is, mind consists of both subject and object. But ego, the first thought I, is the subject, the knower of all other thoughts. All other thoughts are objects. So when he said to mind knowing its own form of light, he implies ego knowing its own form of light. Ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this body. It's the its own form of light is the pure awareness I am. So when the mind, when we turn our attention away from everything else, back to face ourself alone, to see what we actually are, that is what Bhagavan means here by the mind knowing its own form of light. And so when he says in the next verse, um, Manati Nurve Maravada Chava, when one investigates the form of the mind without forgetting, what he means by the form of the mind is the um is the, the mind's form of light. In other words, the, the light of pure awareness that is ever shining within the mind as I am. So when we investigate this awareness I am without forgetting, it will be clear that, that alone is what exists and therefore there is no such thing as mind at all. So though it is described as mano naso, destruction of the mind, from our perspective, uh, that is, for, for our benefit, it is described as destruction of the mind. But Bhagavan has made it clear that but, but there's not actually any mind to destroy. When we, it, It's like saying that if you look at the snake carefully enough, sorry, yes, if you look at the snake carefully enough, you'll see it's a rope, and thereby you kill the snake. But, you're not actually killing the snake because there never was any snake there in the first place. But metaphorically, we can say we are killing the snake because we, when we recognize that what seemed to be a snake is actually just a rope, the snake that never actually existed thereby ceases to exist. That if the ever non-existent snake ceases to exist and the ever-existent rope seemingly comes into existence, but it doesn't come into existence because it was always there. Likewise, when we investigate ourselves, who now seem to be this ego, when we see what we actually are, we will see that we are, we are always what we actually are and have never been ego. So, um, so ego is like the snake, our own real nature, what we actually are, the pure awareness that we actually are is like the rope. So when we look at this ego carefully enough to see what it actually is, we'll see it is nothing but pure awareness. When we recognize ego as pure awareness, we will see that it was never ego, because ego is not pure awareness, ego is the impure awareness, I am this body. So when we investigate this our fundamental awareness, I am keenly enough, we will see what we actually are. And when we see what we actually are, we will see that we we were never any such thing as mind or ego. This is what is metaphorically described as uh, destruction of mind. So destruction of mind is even more than destruction of mind. It is whereas the classical Advaitins and uh, neo-Advaitins try to water down or reject the idea of manonasa, 
Bhagavan emphasizes it even more by saying what is by by teaching us that what is called manonasa is actually seen that the mind has never existed at all in the first place. So seeing that the mind has never existed is metaphorically called destruction of mind, just as seeing that the snake has never existed can be metaphorically called destruction of the snake, killing of the snake. Um, so I hope this adequately answers those questions. Sorry, I've spoken for quite a long time on this, but this is uh, such an important, I mean, this is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. Bhagavan's yes, entire aim of Bhagavan's teachings is destruction of ego or mind. Um, because only in the state where ego or mind is destroyed can we attain the infinite happiness that is our own real nature. So that is what Bhagavan's teachings are all about. He ends Uladunapudu by saying, Ahande Uru Aridal Mukti, destruction or the, the ego form being destroyed alone is Mukti. And he begins actually by saying, Arunachala Mena, Ahameinine Pava, Ahateve Radupai Arunachala. Arunachala, you eradicate the ego of those who meditate on you in the heart as I. So um, that is whether in Bhagavan's, um, whether in, in Arunachala Stuti Panchakram, or in Uludunaptu, um, you know, throughout all Bhagavan's work, there is one aim and one aim alone, that is destruction of ego. The, the rising of our self as ego is the cause of all troubles. The destruction of ego is the ending of all troubles. So that is, Bhagavan is unequivocally making it clear that destruction of ego or mind is alone the true goal of spiritual life. That is alone the, the only worthy aim of life. Everything else is, is it's meaningless in comparison to this. It, it has no meaning at all. This, this life we are living now has no meaning at all because it does, it's, it's all just a, an appearance. It's only when we rise as ego that all this seems to exist. So if we see what we are, we ourselves actually are, and thereby destroy ego, that alone, uh, that alone can give true and lasting meaning to our life, to our existence. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. Um, there are a number of questions, Michael, I think yes. about five or six. Uh, just before we get to them, just to sort of simplify in a way, I, I just had a question or a sort of a comment. Um, 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 so on the one hand, uh, uh, we know that <clears throat> that when we go to sleep every day and we're in deep sleep, uh, there is no mind. Uh, yes. and, uh, but the mind seems to rise again, seems to yes. rise again when yes. we wake up. At the same time, um, uh, um, and this is because we're no longer in a state of self-attention. I suppose yes. one way of perhaps putting it would be that we enter kind of an automatic self-attention spontaneously without um, actually uh, knowing, I don't know, um, so to speak, without sort of recognizing who we really are uh, and deeply mm -hmm. investigating awareness, uh, um, our own awareness. We simply enter into this uh, no mind state and so on uh, when we're in deep sleep. But also in our everyday lives, uh, and I find this quite interesting, uh, you know, um, sort of when we're walking, but even when we're driving, I mean, uh, this is something I don't usually drive very much, but I've, but I've been noticing that suddenly 
for quite a length of time, one is simply not aware of what's going on, and yet things are going on, supposedly. Yeah. And there really is not, in that sense, um, uh, um, and in a lot of our lives. I mean, in fact, I don't think we would have a life uh, if we didn't have this sort of no mind state there. Uh, yeah. In fact, I mean, in fact, it's there perhaps all the time, but every so often the mind pops up. So the world kind of goes on, our own world, our own life actually goes on in a state of no mind. But that no mind uh, is only there as the gaps in awareness, right? Be uh, um, as the gaps in a kind of mental awareness of the world. And we suddenly come back and the problems come back and we know I'm doing this or I'm going there. But in the case of somebody who has recognized this, so to speak, investigated uh, mm. their own self and so on, there is no popping back up again i just yeah. thought this is a sort of a simple thing which we experience all the time yes. so it's a good kind of a reference point yes. uh because it's all the time happening you know uh okay where was i well um yeah so to speak uh you know um you know all this got done without my being aware of it at all yeah but without my but, being aware of the world at all things you know but we are not then in actually in a state of no mind because we are our our attention is on other things. We're thinking about other things. That's why we, um, we, we're not paying attention to what is happening. But, but this thing about driving without, um, with, with the minimal attention is, is interesting because actually a, a good driver will, will drive with minimal attention. If you try to attend to everything, if you try to attend to the car on this side, the car on that side, what's coming there? If you try to attend to to it, you'll not you you'll you'll surely have an accident because we we simply can't attend to so many things yeah. at the same time. So, just like this activity of driving goes on on autopilot, as it were, so many activities in our life go on on autopilot, and the more we turn our attention within and hold on to self-attentiveness, the more the whole life will be going on on autopilot, everything. But what's happening when we're driving, we, well, for most of us, we, 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 uh, we, we, our mind is caught up in so many other thoughts. We'll be thinking about so many other things, but driving is going on perfectly well because it goes on, on virtually on autopilot. Um, but our mind will be on other things. We can see that if we observe closely, even people say, how can you attend to self when you have, um, when you've got, when your uh, work involves mental, mental activity? I mean, if you're, if you're a computer programmer or an accountant or almost any job, nowadays most jobs require, seem to require a lot of mental activity. We're not just sweeping the streets. If you're sweeping the streets, okay, we, most people can understand, yes, you can be attending to yourself while sweeping the street. But if you're doing more seemingly more complex mental activity, how can you be holding on to self-attentiveness? It is actually possible. Because even when we are engaged in work, engaged in work that requires a, seemingly requires a lot of our attention, still in the background of our mind, there'll be mental chatter going on. We'll be thinking about this or that. And so it, 
in fact, if we go deep into this practice of self-investigation and self-surrender, we will find that all the activities of mind, speech, and body can go on on autopilot, just like the driving goes on on autopilot. But in order to see that clearly, we need to go deeper and deeper in this practice of self-investigation. The deeper we go in the practice of self-investigation, the clearer it will become that thing, everything is happening on autopilot. So though we still identify ourselves with this body and mind and therefore still have a sense of doership, the sense of doership somehow becomes more tenuous, less solid. We, we less strongly feel, I am doing this. It's, it's more, this is just sort of happening through me. Like how often I myself wonder how I'm able to answer all the questions that people ask about Bhagavan's teachings, because I'm really no better than anyone else. I'm just an ordinary person. But how is it I'm able to do this? It can only be that it's happening through me, not it's happening because of me. And it, it, that's true of all activities of life. If we, when we go deeper in this practice of self-investigation, we will find that whatever we're doing, it's it's going on 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 autopilot. So whether we're a street sweeper or we're a, um, a, a very skilled musician or scientist or whatever, whatever activities we're doing in this life, it's all going on according to, <clears throat> as as Bhagavan often used to say. Avanarala Landri or Anubamasayadu. That's a this is a, a an old saying in Tamil. Without his grace, not even an atom, except by his grace, not even an atom moves. So everything is going on by grace. The trouble is we rise as ego and say, I I am doing this, I am doing that. That is what we need to get rid of. We can get rid of that doership only to the extent to which we go deep within. And the deeper we go within, the more we will find that everything is just happening as it's meant to happen. And the more we, the more we recognize that, the easier it becomes for us to surrender ourselves. Because the more we recognize everything's being taken care of by him, so why should we rise and take on the doership for all these things? Why should we take all these on our head when we could simply subside back within and be peaceful in the heart? Yes. Um, the one thing which always puzzles me a, a, a little bit in all this is that um, this thing of attention in mind, um, because when we're because when there is self attending and so on, yes. then uh, you know we're effectively uh, sort of there isn't a mind. But the minute the attention becomes uh, localized or focused or moves out of the self, then there is mind and world and all the rest yeah. of it. Yeah. So. We speak a lot about attention, but how would we? But, but what is it really in relation to mind? I mean, is it yes? That <clears throat> earlier you said, but in but when we fall asleep, we're in in a sense in a state of self attentiveness. That is not quite correct. Attention is a function of the mind. In sleep, there is no self attention because what exists in sleep is just pure awareness. Pure awareness never needs to attend to itself because there's nothing other than itself for it to be aware of. But when we rise as ego, we project all this multiplicity, but we can't be attending to everything at the same, we, we can't be fully aware of everything around us. So 
the, the nature of the mind or ego is to have is to focus its attention on one thing. But just just to use an an analogy, see sight. We we have sight all around, but actually we are. Are, we 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 can turn our eyes in different directions. Though I can see what's going, I can see my hands here. I can't. I can just about see them, but I can't really. See, I had to look to actually see them. It's like that with awareness. We we've we though we have a peripheral awareness of everything around us, we actually really are aware of what we are focusing our awareness on. So attention is a bit like. Um, turning our eyes towards something. We, we, we're focusing our awareness on one particular thing. When we're aware of so many things, we can't be uh, equally aware of everything. So we focus our awareness on, on something. So it's only for the mind. So this focusing of our awareness is what is called attention. And it's only for the mind that there can be attention because it's only for the mind that there's multiplicity, there's a, a awareness of multiplicity. In the state of sleep, there's no need for attention, or there's no possibility of attention because there's no multiplicity. There's only one. Our own being alone shines in sleep. Nothing else is there. And because you mentioned sleep, it's this is also an interesting point to mention here. That is, what it, what remains shining in sleep is only pure awareness. But why? Is ego not destroyed by that pure awareness? Because we, how do we enter sleep? We enter sleep because of tiredness, because we're too tired to continue projecting this world. Ego subsides. And as a result of the subsidence of ego, pure awareness alone remains. In order to destroy ego, ego needs to see itself as pure awareness. In the case of sleep or any other state of manolea, ego first subsides and then pure awareness remains. But it's before ego subsides, ego needs to see itself as pure awareness. In other words, ego needs to subside as a result of seeing itself as pure awareness. As soon as that's why we have to investigate ourselves. As soon as we turn our attention within keenly enough. That is, the more we turn our attention within, the more our attention is withdrawn from other things. So if we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we will eventually reach a point where we're aware of nothing other than ourselves. Being aware of nothing other than ourselves is the state of pure awareness. So we as ego will reach a point where we experience ourselves as pure awareness. But as soon as ego experiences itself as pure awareness, it ceases to be ego, because ego is the impure awareness, I am this body. When, it, when we experience ourselves as the pure awareness I am, ego is thereby destroyed. That is why Bhagavan insisted that investigating ourselves is the only means to destroy ego. All other paths are beneficial to the extent to which they lead us towards this path. But ultimately, for destruction of ego, the only means is self-investigation or self-attentiveness. We need to attend to ourselves so keenly that we cease to be aware of anything else and thereby become aware of ourselves with pure awareness. 
That is, we as ego become aware of ourselves as pure awareness. But as soon as we as ego become aware of ourselves as pure awareness, we cease to be ego and remain eternally as pure awareness, as we always actually are. Oh, we have eight or nine questions. Okay, so, okay. And we have, I think, about an hour. I don't okay, think we Okay, well, we'll, we'll keep, keep going long. as long as we can. Yeah. yeah. So the first question, uh, it's two together, is, is the universe real or an illusion? I still do not understand what going in means. And where is that in? That's the second question. Okay. Uh, yes, the universe is an illusion. It's it, because universe has no existence independent of our perception of it. It seems to exist only when we're aware of it. In, in sleep, it doesn't seem to exist because we don't rise as ego. In waking and dream, we rise as ego and consequently we're aware of the world. So the world is just an appearance. It has no, it has no actual existence. It merely seems to exist. And it seems to exist only in the view of ourself as ego. So the, the, the semi-existence of the universe depends depends that the universe depends for its semi-existence <coughs> upon the semi-existence of ourself as ego because it's only in the view of ourself as ego that it seems to exist and we as ego depend for our semi-existence upon the real existence of ourself as i am so ultimately the universe is reduced into ego and ego is reduced into i am so bhagavan is the ultimate reductionist he reduces everything to ego. As he says in verse 26 of Uludanapri, what I talked about earlier, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So Bhagavan reduces everything to ego. And if we investigate this ego, Ego will subside, and what will remain shining is the one underlying reality, the pure awareness I am, and that alone is what we actually are. So everything can be reduced to ego, and ego, by investigation, will be reduced to the underlying reality, namely Satchit, the pure existence awareness I am. So yes, the first part of the question is yes, the universe is an illusion. What the second question? It's actually two questions. Second question is what is going inwards? In and out are relative terms. Uh, that is depending on the context. You can we can say um, India is in Asia. It's outside Europe or outside America. So when we talk about in and out, we, we, we need to decide where the boundaries are. So if, if India is in, in, sorry, India is in Asia because it's within the boundaries of Asia. It's outside Europe or America because it's outside their boundaries. So that is what, that, that is one, that is, uh, that, 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 I say that just to illustrate in and out have relative uh, meaning. We can talk about in and out with regard to the body. That is all the organs of the body, the heart, the liver, the kidneys, and so on. They're all inside the body. Um, the clothes we wear, they're outside the body. So, it, because the, the boundary of the body is the skin. 
So anything that's outside that is um, is outside. Anything that's inside that is inside, relative to the boundary of the body. So the food we eat, it, when it's put on the plate in front of us, it's outside our body. We put it in and it becomes inside our body. So because there, in the case of the body, the boundary is the, the skin of the body. The mind, are things existing inside the mind or outside the mind? If we take the mind to be something limited that exists within this body, as it seems to be, then we have to say everything is outside the mind. But if we think about it more deeply, actually all these things we experience, we're experiencing only inside our mind. So everything is inside the mind from that perspective. Um, but in the so when we talk about inside and outside, these are relative terms. In the context of Atmavichara, everything other than ourself, Atmavichara means self-investigation. In the context of self-investigation, everything other than ourself is outside. What is meant by inside is what exists inside is only ourself. So um there, the, the, the sense in which inside is used there is what is the that is now we experience ourselves as this body. Within this body, there seems to be a life, a mind, an intellect, a will, and all these things. But within all these things, there's an ego that is aware of itself as I am this body. And within this ego is this uh, core awareness, fundamental awareness, I am. So what is ultimately inside is this awareness I am. So when Bhagavan talks about turning within, he means turning towards this core awareness I am. That is why Bhagavan often referred, often described this awareness I am as the heart. Because heart means the center, the innermost core. So the innermost core of all things that, that is the center of everything is ego, because it's only from the perspective of ego that we're aware of everything else. And the center of ego, the heart of ego, is the pure awareness I am. So turning within, when Bhagavan talks about turning within, he means turning our attention back towards ourselves, towards this fundamental awareness I am. Everything other than this fundamental awareness I am, in this context, is considered as external. This is why in Nana, in the, um, in the sixth paragraph of Nana, um, Bhagavan says, again, I'll just read the, I'll read, the, I'll read the meaning. Um, when the subtle mind goes out through the doorway of the brain and sense organs, gross names and forms appear. When it remains in the heart, names and forms disappear. The heart here means the, the innermost core of our being. In other words, when we don't rise and go outwards. So heart means swarupa, our own real nature. The name ahamukam, ahamukam means facing inwards, or facing eyewards, or antamukam, which also means facing inside, uh, is only for keeping the mind in the heart without letting it go out. In other words, um, the um the the name uh ahamukam or facing inwards of uh, uh refers only to keeping the mind in the heart without letting it go out the name bahimukam 
facing outwards, Bahimukha means facing outwards, is only for, or only refers to, letting it go out from the heart. So keeping the mind always in the heart, in other words, keeping the mind always fixed in ourself, keeping our attention fixed in ourself, that alone is what Bhagavan means by ahamukam or antamukam. Letting the attention go out towards anything else is bahimukam, facing outside. So facing inside means facing ourselves alone. I hope that adequately answers that question. The next question is, um, I find that the activity of the mind can be steadied by focusing on the breath, particularly during physical exercise, for example, yoga and running. Is there any spiritual significance between the mind and the breath? Is the breath the physical embodiment of the mind in the waking state? Um, yeah, this is the principle on which yoga is based. That is... The mind and the breath are very closely related. If we, if we calm down the mind, the breathing will be calmed. If the mind is much agitated, our breathing will be uneven. If, a, if, we, if we calm the mind, the breathing will be uh, calmed. Likewise, if we calm the breathing, the mind will also be calmed. Yoga is based on this, uh, this try of controlling the breath in order to uh, curb the mind, in order to subdue the activity of the mind. And it's, a, it's an effective means of subduing the activity of the mind. But one very simple way of subduing the activity of mind, we don't actually have to do all these exercises of pranayama. If you want to calm down the mind, if you're, whenever you're in a very agitated state, if you want to calm down the mind, a simple technique anyone can use is to calmly observe the breathing. If we observe the breathing, automatically the breathing calms down and slows down and becomes more regular. And by the breathing become, calming down and becoming more regular, the mind also calms down. So that's a simple technique for calming down the mind. However, what is the spiritual significance of this? Um, the, for the yogis, it's very significant. But from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, it's not actually very significant. Because though we can calm down the mind, but that is... You, Whenever Bhagavan talks about yoga, in, in Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, he talks about, it, it's called Ashtanga Yoga, it's the eight-limbed yoga. And they, they're a, one of those eight limbs is pranayama. But whenever Bhagavan talks about yoga, he generally talks only about pranayama. For example, in verses um, uh, 11 and 12 of Upadeshundia, when talking, when he begins to talk about yoga, he's talking only about prana, and he says, "If you, uh, um, the prana, and um, uh, prana, prana means the breath in this context, but prana actually has a broader meaning. It means all the physiological functions of the body. But the most obvious physiological function of the body, one of the central physiological functions of the body, is breathing. Um, we we can't calm down our heart rate or anything, or." Advanced yogis can, but no, for most of us, we can't calm down our heart rate, but we can calm down our breathing by um, either by deliberately regulating it or simply by observing it. Um, so uh, in, in, in the 
in this context, pranayama means uh, prana refers primarily to the breathing. Um, so Bhagavan says that the, the breath and the mind share a common source, and that when one is controlled, the other is controlled. So that by uh, like um, catching a bird in a net, uh, by controlling the mind, you can con by sorry by controlling the breath, you can control the mind. A simple analogy to <laughs> <laughs> illustrate this that Sadom used to uh, give. If you have one switch that controls both the light and the fan, if you if you want to, uh, re and and the switch is not just an on-off switch; it's a dimmer switch. So you can you can turn it up or turn it down. If you want to reduce the speed of the fan, you have to turn it down. But when you reduce the speed of the fan, you also reduce the speed of the light. If you want more light, you have to turn it up, and then you speed up the um, the fan. So it's like that. The, the the connection between the mind, the activity of the mind, and the activity of the breath are are, are like the the fan and the light, but are both controlled by one dimmer switch. So that is a technique for uh, controlling the mind but when bhagavan talks about yoga he doesn't he's not he doesn't generally mention any of the other limbs of yoga he's only talking about pranayama uh, likewise in um in um, um in arunacha pancharatnam um in, in there's one verse in arunacha pancharatnam verse 4 uh, there also he's talking about yoga and he talks about controlling the breath so we need to consider why, instead of talking about all the other limbs of yoga, why does Bhagavan talk about this one limb of yoga, as if yoga is all about just about pranayama? There's a reason for this. Yoga, pranayama is the key technique in yoga because, as Bhagavan pointed out, if you try to control the mind, by the mind, you're just trying by one thought to control other thoughts. So you cannot stop all thoughts just by trying to control your thoughts, because there's a there, what is it that's trying to control the thoughts? It's ego, and its effort to control the thoughts is it. The ego is a thought. Ego is the first thought, the thought I. So you're you're you've got one thought that is using another thought, the effort to control the mind to control all the other thoughts. So you 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 cannot stop all thoughts just by the just with the intention to do so so the key technique in yoga the essential technique in yoga is pranayama because the aim of yoga is as it potentially says in the right at the beginning of, the, of his yoga sutra yoga's chitta vritti nirodaha yoga is uh is curbing or, or stopping or uh, restraining the activity of the mind, chitta vritti. So the aim of yoga is to stop mental activity. In order to stop all mental activity, the only technique available in yoga is, that though they talk about dharana and dhyana and all these other things, but the essential tool they are using is pranayama to bring about all these other states, because it's only by controlling the breath that you can stop the mental activity of the activity of the mind. If your aim is to stop the activity of the mind, 
in Bhagavan's path, our aim is not to stop the activity of the mind. If we attend to ourselves, the mind will automatically, the activity of mind will automatically subside. But that is a byproduct. It is not our aim. This is very, very important to understand because many people mistake stopping thought, stopping thinking as self-attentiveness. That is not the case. Thinking stops every night when we fall asleep. If you stop all mental activity, you end up in a state called man manolaya. Manolaya, as Bhagavan clarifies in verse 13 of Upadesha Undia, he said there are two types of dissolution of mind, manonasa and manolaya. If what is dissolved in manolaya will rise again. If its form dies in manonasa, it will not rise again. So the aim of Bhagavan's teachings is manonasa, not manolaya. And to According to Bhagavan, Manolaya is of no use. Obviously, sleep is a state of Manolaya. We all need to sleep every day. Bhagavan is not against sleeping because so long as our mind is active, it needs it needs to subside in sleep uh, for a while in order to recharge its energy and come back. In sleep, we subside, mind subsides into our real nature. And by remaining subsided in our real nature, so to speak, it recharges its batteries. So the source of all power is from uh, from our own source, uh, that is the, our own real nature, Atmaswarupa is alone the source of all power. So by subsiding in sleep, the mind recharges its battery and it wakes up in the morning all eager to uh, get back to activity, doing this and that and everything, until night comes and it becomes too tired and it falls asleep again. Um, so that type of manolaya is necessary. We couldn't be constantly active without manolaya. But yogis are trying to bring about manolaya. And the state of manolaya that is achieved by means of the yoga techniques is what is called nivikalpa samadhi. To illustrate the futility of having that as one's aim, Bhagavan used to tell a story of a yogi on the banks of the Ganga. He was very adept at um, pranayama and other yoga techniques. So he was able to go into Nivikalpa Samadhi. Um, he was frequently uh, subsiding in Nivikalpa Samadhi and spending most of his time in that state. So the, he lived in, in a small hut on the banks of the Ganga, and there was a small village nearby. The villagers had great respect for him. They thought he's a great Mahatma because he's always sitting there in Samadhi. Um, so one of, the, one of the villagers became his disciples. One day when he woke up from his uh, Samadhi, uh, he asked his disciple to go and fetch water. So the disciple went down to the river to fetch water. But before he came back, the yogi had again gone back into Nivikalpa Samadhi. And this time he went into Nivikalpa Samadhi so deeply that he remained in that state for 300 years. This is how Bhagavan told the story. People may ask, oh, how is it possible for body to live for 300 years? But actually, it is, uh, it is possible if you go into, if you're a very adept yogi, you go and go into Nivikalpa Samadhi so deeply, everything will slow down. Your heart may beat just once a minute or something. Your breathing will become almost imperceptible. So because all the, the physiological functions, in other words, the prana activities, um, 
slowed down to such an extent, the body can remain like that for even hundreds of years. But that's very, very rare. I mean, it's only very adept yogis who can do this. So the body is hardly aging because of it, because the the activity, the physiological functions are happening so slowly. So without food or water, he remained in that state for 300 years. When he woke up after 300 years, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? But as Bhagavan, when Bhagavan tells the story, he, he, tell, he embellishes it, he, he livens it up. He said, in those 300 years, um, everything had changed. But by that time, when he went into Nivakalpa Samadhi, there was, it was, India was an entirely Hindu country. But after 300 years, the, the Muslim invasions had come, so it was under the rule of the Mughals. And um, the river Ganga had changed its course, so it was now several miles away from where the yogi was sitting. And because the river had changed its course, the village had also moved. So the yogi was then sitting in the midst of a jungle had grown up all around him. But when he woke up, where's my water, he angrily asked. What Bhagavan said about that is, when even the most superficial, the last thought that was in his mind when he went to, into Nivikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that popped up when he woke up from Nivikalpa Samadhi. That means even the most superficial thought in his mind was not destroyed in spite of the fact of his remaining in Nivikalpa Samadhi for 300 years. So when even the most superficial thought is not destroyed, what to say of all the vasanas? So Bhagavan used to tell this story to illustrate that remaining in Nivikalpa Samadhi or any other state of Manolaya is of no spiritual value because we are not, we cannot destroy vasanas in Nivikalpa, in Manolaya. It's only in the waking and dream states when the vasanas are active, but we can choose either to be swayed by them or not swayed by them. Depending on whether we allow ourselves to be, if we allow ourselves to be swayed by any particular vasana, that vasana becomes stronger. If we refrain from being swayed by it, it becomes weaker. This is where the efficacy of, of constant practice of self-attentiveness comes in, because when we are holding on to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing ourselves to be swayed by any vishaya vasanas, we are being swayed only by sat vasana, the inclination just to be. So by self-attentiveness, sat vasana is strengthened and vishaya vasanas are weakened. This is what Bhagavan talks about in the 10th and 11th paragraphs of Nana. So uh, according to Bhagavan, the, the, the Yoga, if you follow the techniques of yoga, you, the most you can achieve is manolaya, nevikalpa samadhi, if you want to call it that. But that is of no spiritual value. In order to, that is why in verse 14 of um, Upadesha Undiya, Bhagavan says, only if the mind, which will subside by restraint of the breath, only if that mind is sent on the all-vari will its form die. What does he mean by all-vari? All-vari, vari means path. All can be interpreted in two ways. All can be mean oru, means one. All can also mean orum, which means knowing or investigating. So we can take it only if it's sent on the one path will its form die. 
or only if it's sent on the investigating part will its form die. Actually, these two meanings are the same because what Bhagavan, if, if Bhagavan talks about what is the one path Bhagavan teaches us, it's the path of self-investigation because this is the one path by which we can destroy the mind. So the, the clearest interpretation, the, the most meaningful interpretation we can give to or vari is to take it as or and vari, the investigating part. That is what Bhagavan is implied. So what he says there, the mind that will subside as a result of Beth's restraint will be destroyed only if you send it on this path of self-investigation. So yoga can only lead to manolaya. It cannot lead to manonasa. Bhagavan says that explicitly in the eighth paragraph of Nana. Uh, he ends by saying, um, he sends by the eighth paragraph by saying, Ahayal, therefore, pranayama manate adhika sahayam, sahayam ahume andri manonasam sayadu. That means, uh, therefore, Pranayama is just an aid or a help to restrain the mind, but will not bring about manonasa. So by following the path of yoga, one can only achieve manolaya. One cannot achieve manonasa. If a yogi wants to achieve manonasa, they have to send their mind on the investigating path. That means they have to turn their attention back within to investigate what they actually are. That is the only way, the only means to bring about Manonasa, according to Bhagavan. Um, so, is, many people ask whether it is useful to, uh, before practicing self-investigation, whether it's useful to watch our breath for a while in order to calm down the mind. The answer to that is, if you want to do so, by all means do so, but it's not necessary because more effective than what, uh, attending to the breath, the most effective means to calm down the mind is to attend to yourself. We don't first have to calm down the mind in order to attend to ourselves, because the most effective way to calm down the mind is to attend to ourselves. So however agitated our mind may be, if we turn our attention inwards, automatically the mind will be calmed. Because as Bhagavan says, by taking our autumn pitikum, by him, if, if this ego is if the ego investigates itself, it will take flight. In other words, it will subside and dissolve back into its source. And there's a problem for people who who try to use watching the breath as a means to calm down the mind in order to attend to themselves. If you're accustomed to watching, attending to the breath, when you try to attend to yourself, your attention will keep on being diverted back towards the breath. So I think the most practical advice for most people is forget about watching the breath, attend to yourself. Because if you start attending, watching the breath, in order to calm down the mind, in order to attend to yourself, you, the breath will then become a distraction to you when you your breathing will then become a distraction to you when you're trying to attend to yourself. So all these, no aids are necessary for this path of self-investigation. All that is required is the liking to know what we actually are. We genuinely have a genuine liking to know what we actually are, genuine love to know what we actually are. That is sufficient. All we need to do is to turn our attention inwards. So I hope that adequately answers those two questions.
Uh, the next question is, um, um, this is from uh, Uluru uh, Narpadu, verse 5. In the early part of Uluru Narpadu, uh, verse 5, uh, will is described as bliss anand. Could you say why, as this is not the usual understanding of will? Thank you. Right, okay. Um, many people, this is such an obvious connection, but most people overlook. That is, in, in Vedanta, there are so many different classifications. One of the classifications is the five sheaths. The five sheaths are the uh, Anamaya Kosha, which is the physical body, the sheath composed of food, the Pranamaya, the Pranamaya Kosha, which is the sheath composed of prana or life, the Manamaya Kosha, which is the sheath composed of mind. That Their mind refers to the grosser functions of the mind, that is the <clears throat> thought, uh, perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, emotions, and so on. That's all Manamaya Kosha. <clears throat> but Vijnana Maya Kosha, of a sheath of intellect is the buddhi or um or intellect and the final sheath or the, the subtlest of all the sheaths is the anandamaya kosha that's one classification there's another classification which talks about the antakarana the antakarana, antakarana means inner instrument and the inner instrument is said to have four parts the manam mind which corresponds to manamaya kosha the buddhi which calls the intellect which corresponds to vijnanamaya kosha the chittam which corresponds to um to the anandamaya kosha and ahankaram or ego ego doesn't correspond to any of the koshas because ego is that element of the mind but appropriates all the five sheaths as i am this body so ego is what identifies itself as all the five sheaths but it is not it is it, ego is not any of the five sheaths so <clears throat> the chittam the will it, many times you'll find in classical dvaita you'll find people will explain chittam as memory that is wrong Chittam is the will, it is the collection, it is the totality of all vasanas. And you'll find many texts will say that chittam consists of vasanas. It is also said that the Anandamaya Kosha consists of vasanas. So the obvious corollary is that they're one and the same. The chittam, what is called Anandamaya Kosha, is, the, is, is what is otherwise called chittam, the will. But Anandamaya Kosha is said to consist of vasanas. Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, etc. So the vasanas are the will in its seed form. So the chittam it means will, Anandamaya Kosha means will. So why is it called Anandamaya Kosha? The usual explanation that is given is that what remains in sleep all the other koshas cease to exist in sleep, in deep sleep, that is, in dreamless sleep, but the Anandamaya Kosha alone remains. Because the Anandamaya Kosha consists of vasanas, and the vasanas remain there in sleep, because only because the vasanas remain there in sleep do the vasanas prompt ego to rise again in waking or dream. This is the usual explanation given in classical Advaita. 
However, this doesn't fit so well with Bhagavan's teachings, because according to Bhagavan, the vasanas are only for ego. In ego, Bhagavan is very clear, but in sleep, there is no mind or ego at all. For example, in the first sentence of the first paragraph of Nana, he says, um, in the last clause of that uh, first sentence, he says, uh, Manamatra, uh, Manamatra Nidrael Dinam Anubhavikam Tansubhava Mana Achukate Adeya Tanne Tan Aridal Vendam. That means, in order to attain that happiness, the happiness he was talking about in the first three clauses, which is one's own nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind. Manamatra Nidrael means in, in sleep, which is devoid of mind. Uh, oneself, knowing oneself is necessary. For that, jnana uh, vichara, um, who am I, alone is the uh, principal means, vimokya sadhanam. So there he's very clear, in sleep there is no mind. Likewise, in verse 22 of Upadesha Undia, he says, um, referring to what he had talked about in the previous verse, which is the, the, the one purna vastu, the one, um, the one infinite whole, but appears as I, I, when ego dies, he said, in, he go, referring to that in verse 22, he says, that is always the true import of the word I, uh, that, that is, uh, how does he say it? Um, that literally means that is always the true import of the word I, because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, which is devoid of I. So when he says it's always the true import of the word I, he means that I that that's the real I, but exists in all three states. That, and he says, because of the absence of our non-existence, that means the absence of, our, of the non-existence of that real I, in sleep, which is devoid of I. What does he mean when he says sleep is devoid of I? He means it's devoid of ego. Ego is that same I mixed and conflated with adjuncts. In sleep, there's no such conflation. So ego is absent in sleep. Since ego is absent in sleep, everything else is absent in sleep. Vasanas cannot remain without ego because their ego is vasanas. The reason it is said in classical Advaita that the vasanas remain in sleep, people want an explanation. If ego doesn't exist in sleep, then how does it come into existence again in waking or dream? And then the, to satisfy people who ask such questions, it's a, oh, but the vasanas remain there, and the vasanas prompt ego to rise again. But the vasanas cannot remain without ego. So it's, it, there's an inconsistency there, but it's an explanation to satisfy those who do not inquire so deeply. But Bhagavan gives us much deeper explanation. According to Bhagavan, there's no ego, and therefore no vasanas at all in sleep. So how does ego rise from sleep? If we ask Bhagavan, he'll say, first see whether it's risen, and then you come back and ask me that question. If you look within to see whether ego has ever risen, you'll see there's no such thing as ego at all. So Bhagavan's teachings are, the explanations given by Bhagavan are much deeper than the explanations given, generally given in classical Advaita. So, um, why if if that so the, the usual explanation that is given for why 
the Anantamaya Kosha is called the sheath of, Anantamaya Kosha means the sheath composed of happiness. The usual explanation is that because the, that alone remains in sleep, and um, sleep is a blissful state. That is, obviously, if Anandamaya Kosha doesn't exist in sleep, as it, which according to Bhagavan, it doesn't, then why is it called Anandamaya Kosha? Because the answer is again found to be found in the, the first um, um, sentence of the first paragraph of Nana. There Bhagavan says, um, um, <clears throat> Priya Taku, uh, since happiness alone is the cause of love, that is whatever we love or like or desire, we desire it because we think we're going to get happiness from it. So whatever seems to us to be a source of happiness, we, ha we naturally have liking for that, have desire for that. If we think being a billionaire will make us happy, we will have we will have great desire for money. If we think that being um, very famous will make us happy, we'll have desire for fame. If we believe that um, being very learned will make us happy, we'll be have desire to study more and more and more. Um, if we believe um, what, what, wherever we believe happiness lies, that we will have a liking for that. So, um, all desire is driven by all will is driven by the will for happiness we that is as bhagavan says in the first clause of that first sentence um uh, that i'll go to that because it's such an important um it's such an important paragraph uh, this incidentally this one important thing about this first paragraph of nana this was not part of the original answers that bhagavan gave to shiva kashan pillai Bhagavan added this paragraph when he rewrote the question and answer form of Who Am I, when he refined it and uh, 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 rearranged it in the form of an essay, he added this paragraph. So this is such an important paragraph. And he begins this paragraph by pointing out, Sakala Jivagalam Dukkumembadindri Epodum Sukumai Irika Virambhavadalam. Since all sentient beings like, love, or want to be always happy without what is called misery. So we all have a, it's our very nature to like to be happy because happiness is our real nature. So we, we cannot, we cannot but have liking for happiness. So whatever else we may like or desire, we like it or desire it because we believe it's a source of happiness. As he says in the second, in the third, oh, then in the second clause, he says, Yavakum tan idtileye parama priyam irapadalam. For, uh, since for everyone the greatest love is only for oneself. And then he says, this clause I referred to earlier, priyataku sukume karanamadalalam. Uh, since, <coughs> since happiness alone is the cause of love. So, um, because the will consists of desires, likes, dislikes, desires, and so on, what is the driving force behind all those is the fundamental liking we all have for happiness. So that is why that sheath is called Anandamaya Kosha, the sheath composed of happiness. So happiness and will are inextricably linked. In the 
when we know ourselves as we actually are, we will know that happiness and love are one and the same thing. That happiness and love are our own real nature. Our real nature is sometimes described as Sat Chit Ananda. Sat means pure being, Chit means pure awareness, Ananda means pure happiness. It's also sometimes described as Asti Bhakti Priyam. Asti means um, uh, being, in other words, Sat. Uh, Bhati means shining, that is Chit. And Priyam means love, that is Ananda. So Asti Bhati Priyam and Satchit Ananda are two parallel, I mean, they're exactly parallel. So happiness and love are inseparable. If we, if we, we all love to be happy, and we are happy when we get what we love. So we, you cannot separate happiness and love. That is why the will is called Anandamaya Kosha. So I know this is not how it is usually explained, but anyone who thinks a little deeply about, I mean, even in classical Advaita, they so often say chittam consists of vabhasanas. That's why they people confuse it with memory, because vabhasanas come from time immemorial, as Bhagavan says. So vabhasanas are coming from the past, Memories are coming from the past, so chitta must mean memory. But that is not what it means. It means memory is some is a part of the manamaya kosha. It's a gross function of the mind. The will is the subtlest. The, 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 the chitta consists only of vasanas, not of memories. The vasanas, like memories, come from the past, but the memories generally come only from the past in this life, whereas from the the vasanas come from time immemorial, from the time we first rose as ego, whenever that was, if ever, if ever that was. The vasana, we've, we've been cultivating these vasanas. So, um, the chittam means will, it means the vasanas, and that is what is also called anandamaya kosha. So, some, some classical Advaitins may object to it, but if you point out to them, but uh, doesn't the chittam consist of vasanas? They'll have to say yes, because it's written like that in so many texts. And doesn't Anandamaya Kosha consist of vasanas? They'll have to say yes. Ergo, chittam and Anandamaya Kosha are one and the same thing. Simple, simple and obvious truth, but, but is for some reason overlooked by most classical Advaitins. Um, just a quick question, Michael, or other um, a reference. Yes. Um, if uh, because, because I think some people might be interested, including myself, as to where it says that chittam is uh, is will and uh, and my gosh, whatever it's um, it's the vasanas uh, that would would just help people, I guess. I look at look in any Sanskrit dictionary, any Tamil dictionary, and you'll find chittam is will. It will. They'll also give up means because chittam is sometimes used in the sense of mind more generally, but yeah. in any good dictionary, one of the meanings of chittam will be will. That is the principal meaning of chittam. When we talk about manas, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram, before antakaranas, the chittam means will. Okay. Yeah, because because a chittam or a chitta is usually translated as either mind or consciousness or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it dep depends on the context. It depends on the context. In many contexts, chittam does mean mind more generally. But particularly in the context of chitta suddhi, what is it that we have to purify? Chitta suddhi means purification of mind. But what, what element of the mind needs purifying? It's the will. 
because the impurity is in the mind of a vasanas. Okay. So quick question. Um, in the Upanishads, it talks about Chidghana, uh, which is translated as sort of dense consciousness. Den, den, yeah, yeah, Bhagavan also talk, talks uses yeah. that term. Now, that is the Chittam or is that... No, that I mean, is Chit. They, 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 there's a verse in Guru Vachakokavai in which Bhagavan, um, Bhagavan explains the meaning of Chittam. But this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't a strict etymological uh, meaning, but it's a... It's a it's a meaning of it's a um, it's the, uh, an explanation of the sense of the, the distinction between chit and chittam. Chittam is pure awareness. When that pure awareness is mixed with tamas, it becomes chittam. So the tam element there is the tamas. That that is not a correct. That is not an etymology. That is a a, a philosophical explanation of the term. So then a chidghana is just pure awareness. Sort of pure dense, awareness, yes. The, 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 dense, uh, the, the ocean of pure awareness. Or... Okay. okay. Um, the next question is, do our bodies exist only for the purpose of providing jiva a means to discover the self? And we, we have a couple more questions for the next <laughs> 20 minutes or so. Um, yeah, if, if we are to give any mean, now, now we exist, we seem to exist as a body. If we are to give any meaning to this, our life as a body, the only meaning we can give it is taking this as a means to know ourselves. Of course, if we, we, we don't need a body to know ourselves, but because we are now identified with the body, we need to use this, this, this embodied state to investigate what we actually are and thereby to shed this body and mind and everything else. We can't say that's a purpose because if we, if it wasn't for the body, I mean, if we hadn't risen as ego and, and projected and identified ourselves with the body, we would be always aware of ourselves as we actually are. In fact, we are always aware of ourselves as we actually are. It's only as ego we seem to be we seem to be aware of ourselves as something else. So it's actually not so useful to think of what is the purpose of these things. What is the use we can make of this? We're now in an embodied state. What is the use we can make of this embodied state? We can use this state to investigate and know what we actually are. The next question is, was Bhagwan born... Uh, sorry. Was Bhagwan born and Atmagyani. In other words, was he a reincarnation of Arunachala, or did he become the Atmagyani when he, as Vetraman, had that fear of death at his uncle's house, and he turned within himself with such intensity that he lost his ego then and there? So, if the second scenario is true, then Bhagwan was not born as an Atmagyani, but because the Gyani, when he was sixteen years old, but became a Gyani, but when he when he was sixteen years old. Which of these options is true? Um, somewhere in between. The simplest answer is Bhagavan was never born. Because we take Bhagavan to be that body, that person, that person was born. What was born was that boy Venkataraman. The ego that it was aware of itself as I am Venkataraman died. Uh, 
when Venkataraman was 16, the ego that was aware of itself as I am Venkataraman got that intense fear of death, turned its attention inwards, and thereby merged forever back in its source. So that ego was completely obliterated. What then remind, remained shining through that form, but was previously called Venkataraman, was only Arunachala, which is eternally the eternal jnana. So jnana is not something, as Bhagavan often said, jnana is not a new knowledge to be attained. We are, that in jnana is our real nature. In verse 13 of Uledunapati, he begins by saying, jnana mam tane me. That means oneself who is jnana alone is real. Jnana means pure awareness. So that is our real nature. We are that even now. But we, so long as we rise as ego, we seem to be something other than pure awareness. When we know ourselves as we actually are, ego is thereby annihilated. And then we will, it, it will be clear that jnana is not some new knowledge we've attained. Simply we've shed the false knowledge, I am this body. And what remains is the real knowledge, I am. So Bhagavan is eternal, is Jnana, Bhagavan is jnana, and jnana is eternal. So when, once the ego that was aware of itself as I am Venkatarama was destroyed by turning its attention inwards, once it was devoured by Arunachala, the great ocean of chikgana, or jnana, jnanagana, but I think Bhagavan also just used the term jnanagana, uh, chit and jnana are obviously the same, um, what remains shining through that person we call Bhagavan Ramana, that is Arunachala. That is why he's called Bhagavan. That boy Venkataraman wasn't Bhagavan. He was uh, a very special boy, uh, very, I mean, obviously a highly mature soul, but he wasn't Bhagavan. Only when he surrendered himself completely and was swallowed by Arunachala, and Arunachala shone through that form, that, um, then only that is Bhagavan. So Arunachala is Bhagavan, Bhagavan is Arunachala. <clears throat> Bhagavan in the form of a hill we call Arunachala. Arunachala in human form we call Bhagavan. So Bhagavan himself was never born, he's, he's eternal. If he was born, then, then he wouldn't be Bhagavan. Bhagavan is eternal. What was born was that boy, that body, which was uh, uh, that ego took that body called Venkatarama was born. There was an ego that took that body to be I. That ego was a highly mature soul, uh, uh, so so very mature. But the, that mere thought of the uh, fear of death that came at that moment was enough to turn its attention inwards. It merged within, surrendered itself completely to our natural, was swallowed. And then Arunachala alone shone through that form. And Arunachala alone is Bhagavan, and Bhagavan alone is Arunachala. So one question on this. A yes. follow-up question on this, sir. It is my question. Yes. So uh, can we not say that that boy was an avatar of uh, Arunachala? Means from the you... very uh, from the very uh, birth, he was that Arunachala. Because we... We can say whatever we want. It doesn't matter that 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 there was a seeming all, all 
According to the story of Bhagavan's life, there was a semi-ego there up to the age of 16. Hmm. But that semi-ego, why that, why when that ego was so mature did it have to take birth again? It was in order to bring that body to that point, in order for the story of Bhagavan to unfold. So um we we cannot understand the state of Bhagavan. Whatever we say about Bhagavan will be imperfect because he is beyond mind, he's beyond words, beyond whatever. So we can consider him to be an avatar, or we can consider whatever we want. But, but, but the truth is, he alone is the ultimate reality, and he is what is always and has always been shining in our heart as I. That's all we need to know. And if we have true love for him, we need to turn within and um, and uh, and surrender our, thereby surrender ourselves to be swallowed completely by him. That's all that is necessary. We our mind can can describe it in any way we like. There's no wrong in considering Bhagavan to be an avatar if we want to, but it, it it's we need to understand. But whatever understanding we may have about Bhagavan it falls far short of what he actually is. So the uh, death experience he had, can we say that it was a demonstration of the path or, or it... We can down? also say that, yes. Yes. But that yes. death experience was not for Bhagavan. That death yes. experience was only for that ego that was aware of itself as I went to Raman. Yes, so so he was he was demonstrating a path. He was demonstrating what we 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 can say the whole of his life was was a play of divine grace, but the play of his grace. Yeah, it was Leela. You can say yeah. Leela. Yeah, we can say that. Yes, Leela. It was it was it was a Ramana Leela. We can say. We can say that, yes, yes. Yeah. We can say yeah. anything we, we we can say anything we like. So long yeah. as we love Bhagavan and love to yeah. surrender ourselves to Bhagavan, whatever we think about him is fine. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you, thank you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, sir. Um, the next question is um Yeah, the next question is, uh, while I'm blessed to learn about Bhagwan's path and trying to practice self-inquiry as much as I can, I feel I'm not related to the old person before, before knowing this path. But at the same time, I don't feel like a real devotee who can pray for the full destruction of the mind. It is painful. I feel like I'm simmering on a low fire. Maybe this is the process that one should pass through to reach the other level. Is there any comment on this? In one way or another, we're all in this state. We, we, we've all been attracted to Bhagavan's path, but we don't yet have sufficient love to dedicate ourselves to it fully. Dedicating ourselves to it fully means turning within and surrendering ourselves completely. We are not, we, we haven't yet gain the maturity, gain the clarity to, to recognize that, to, to have the, the all-consuming love to surrender ourselves. So um, Bhagavan describes this in Aranacha Patikam, being uh, uh, caught, like uh, being half alive, caught between life and death. 
we're neither re completely ready to surrender ourselves to Bhagavan, nor are we willing to surrender ourselves to our vasanas and the world. So we are, we are caught between the two. That is the state of a spiritual aspirant. That is the nature of a spiritual aspirant. So we're all more or less in the same boat. We may describe it in different terms, but we're all more or less in the same boat. We, we have some liking to surrender ourselves, but we know our liking is hopelessly inadequate. So all we can do is to just continue following the path until that. And the more we follow this path, the more our love to um, attend to ourselves and merge within will grow. So we just have to continue following this path. Let's not worry about our present condition. We are, we are seeking to go beyond, whatever our present condition may be, we are seeking to go beyond that by knowing what we actually are. What we actually are is ever untouched by any of these things. So let us just, Bhagavan has shown us the way, let us do our, Try our best to follow the path he has shown, and let's not worry about anything else. He will take care of everything. All he has asked for us is to try our best to follow this path. Everything else he will take care of. Even this he is taking care of. Even, our, even the effort we make to follow this path is only his grace working through us. But we need to be willing to cooperate with that grace by allowing that grace to to uh, turn our attention back within. I hope that adequately answers that question. I think there's a related question. Jim, did you want to ask a question? Jim? Um, yeah, thanks, Shalini. Thanks, Michael. You've actually just mostly answered it, which is always the way with Bhagavan somehow. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my question was, it was a practical question about readiness to give everything else up, which has been a theme throughout many of the teachings. If we were and ready to give everything up, the story would be over. The fact the story is not over means we, we are not yet ready to give everything up. I, I recognise that. And on the one hand, there's a, a real deep love for Bhagavan's teachings, which most of us share. And yet there seems to be a gap between the love for his teachings and the full relinquishment of interest in other things yeah, versus yeah. the interest in outward things, which I'll be honest, I still am. And <laughs> yeah. I know you've talked many times. We all times. are, we all are. We're all in the same boat. <laughs> and, and so I'm thinking to myself, okay, there's a gap there. So how to bridge that gap? And you've talked many times about just turning within, keep practicing, keep going. And it's easier and easier. And I know that sounds simple, and, it, and it's it's not. It, it probably is simple, but not to, to ordinary beings to to, to do that. But I, 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 my question is: Is it just a case of just keep plodding on and turning that, with? That is all we can do. What else can we do? And it will get easier and more difficult at the same time, because the deeper we go within, the more resistance there will be. The more our vasanas will resist. So. Uh, at the same time, it will seem easier and it will seem more difficult. It will seem easier because we have more love for it. It will seem more difficult because we're resisting it more. Okay, thank you. This is the spirit. This is, Bhagavan often used to say this, the entire spiritual path is a battle fought within our own will. Between grace on the one hand, in the form of Satvasana, and all our other vasanas. So this is the warfare of grace that he refers to in Aksharam Malai. 
So we all have to go through this battle. There's no other way. And this battle is fought within our own will. Okay. The battle between our love to turn within and our residual liking to continue going outwards, seeking happiness, foolishly seeking happiness in things other than ourselves. Why do I, if I trust Bhagavan's teaching that what we actually are is infinite happiness and appear to be more interested at times in finite happiness, even though I know that's daft, it's it's just beguiling, it but, really but, is. Because our understanding, we understand what Bhagavan has said, we understand on the superficial level of our mind, but deep down, we still mm. believe that happiness is there to be gained from outside. If we didn't believe happiness was to be gained from outside, we wouldn't be going out. So the the mere conceptual understanding of Bhagavan's teachings is necessary, but that's only the beginning. Mm. We've got to get a deep inner clarity, and that deep inner clarity can be gained only by practice. So we've just got to go deeper and deeper and deeper within by persevering in this practice. There's no other way. It's the vasana that keeps us thinking that way. <laughs> Yes, yes. Thank you. And the next question, um, so we so we have two questions which we could I think finish up fairly quickly, Michael. So okay, we'll see. For you. Um, after realization of Brahman as pure awareness, is there still potential or necessity for the appearance of incarnation? <clears throat> Brahman is pure awareness. Brahman is what we actually are. We need to know ourselves as such. We need to know ourselves as pure awareness. When we know ourselves as pure awareness, we will know that there never was any incarnation in the first place. Incarnation means birth. Birth, birth in the, in the, the etymology of incarnation. Carne, carne means meat, flesh. So we, we are born as flesh. We are born as flesh because we do not know, because we are seemingly unaware of ourselves as we actually are. When we are aware of ourselves as we actually are, we will know that we were never born as flesh in the first place. What is alone is as it is, and there's nothing else at all. Ultimate truth is ajata, but nothing has ever come into existence. So since nothing has ever come into existence, nothing ever will come into existence. So when we annihilate ego, that is the end of the story, permanent end of the story. It's such a complete end of the story, but there never was a story in the first place. I hope that adequately answers that. The last question is, uh, to what extent should we refrain from interfering with natural processes? such as leaving cobwebs uh, um, or spider homes outside the house or letting fall the autumn leaves that stay as they are based on the belief that not giving attention to something will cause it to disappear? Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, if we, uh, that is in Jainism, they try to take uh, ahimsa to the extreme, which is all well and good. I mean, ahimsa is good, but there are limits to ahimsa. As Bhagavan pointed out, 
our rising as ego is the first himsa. Himsa means harm. So uh, we cannot, that is as a, when we rise as ego, we take a body to be I. As a body, we need food. Even if we eat only plant foods, we, we, we have to take the leaves of plants, we have to take eat fruits, we have to do... It's impossible to live in this world without having some sort of impact. All we can do is to try to minimize our impact, to try to minimize the harmful impact we have on this world. But it's life, the whole process of biological life, life is born, it dies, and um, one um, that that is carnivores live on herbivores, herbivores live on, live on plants, and there are fungi and there are bacteria, all these things, are, they're all interacting, it's all part of the whole web of biological life. Fundamental error we make is taking this body to be I. When we made this fundamental error, all we can do is to try to minimize the harm we do. But we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, we, we have to be reasonable in these things. There is no such thing as perfect ahimsa. Well, perfect ahimsa exists only in the state of manonasa. So we come back to manonasa. If you want perfect ahimsa, you don't want to harm any spiders or any little creatures hiding under the leaves. If you don't want to harm anything, the only way is manonasa. Until we attain manonasa, we take a body to be I, and even if we don't sweep up the leaves, we walk on them. Little creatures inside will die. Inevitable. I mean, we can't avoid it. It's just the nature of, of the, inside our body, there are so many bacteria and um, and other life forms, so many, all the um, intestinal flora and everything. The type of food we eat affects the, the, the organisms living in our, in our stomach. So if you take one food, you'll, it'll be beneficial for one type of organism. If you take another food, it'll be beneficial for another type. So we just can't get away from these things. So let us focus on what is most important. That is knowing and being what we actually are. That is alone is the solution to all problems. So long as we're living this life, we try to, within reason, to minimize the harm we do. That's all we should do. We, we shouldn't give more thought to it than that. We, we, so long as we are living a life with, within reasonable limits, not causing harm to others, that's sufficient. We need to focus on turning our attention within. Because we're not here to be a good person. We're not here to be a, a virtuous person. We are here to know what we actually are. So long as we take our, even if we're the best person in the world, the most virtuous, um, gentle, kind, generous person in the world, we're still a person. That's, the, that's a false awareness of ourselves. We need to know ourselves as we actually are. In this process of trying to know what we actually are, we will naturally become a better person. We'll naturally be, become kinder and more generous and more, because the, the boundaries of self will be dissolving by the more we go deep within. But that it, it, becoming a better person is not our aim. If we make that our aim, we have to be born again and again to become a better person. We want to put an end to this 
false identification, I am a person. And for that, the only means is self-investigation and self-surrender, which in the final analysis are one and the same path. Because we cannot surrender ourselves without investigating ourselves, and we cannot investigate ourselves without thereby surrendering ourselves. As Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanapadu, Adalal Therefore, know that investigating what this is, is giving up everything. So, complete surrender is nothing but Atma-Vichara. And the result of Atma-Vichara is destruction of mind. So, that is our aim. So, let's, let's focus on that aim of annihilating this false awareness, I am this body, which is otherwise, what is, what is otherwise called ego. That is the aim of Bhagavan's teaching. That is the aim of all true spiritual paths. So we began with Mananasa and we end with Mananasa. So Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachala Ramanaya. <laughs>